Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 266, Andrew Davis on Church History, the Trinity, and Modalism, Part 1. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to let you know about the Converge Festival, which will be in Hiram, Ohio, at Hiram College this August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Are you interested in meeting other non-Trinitarian Christians, people who believe that the Father is the only true God and that Jesus is his human Son? Converge isn't a theological conference, it's a celebration and a time for different groups of Unitarian Christians to get together. It's not a church, it's not a ministry, it's not a denomination, it's an event. I'll be there, Sean Finnegan from the Restitutio podcast will be there, author Keegan Chandler will be there, and there'll be a lot of One God believers there that you'll want to meet and find out more about. If that sounds interesting to you, check out convergefest.com. That's convergefest.com. There are details there about speakers, registration, and housing options. I hope to see you at Converge Fest where we can celebrate God together. Mr. Andrew Davis blogs at contramodalism.com, which is a Christian Unitarian website devoted to combating modalism in all its forms. He has a bachelor's degree in history from Masters University in Southern California. He lives with his wife, Erin, in Burbank, California. Mr. Davis, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for having me. So we had the pleasure of meeting at the recent theological conference hosted by Sir Anthony Buzzard's Restoration Fellowship. You told a short version of your story there, and I thought it was really interesting, and that's why I invited you to be on the podcast. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell us who you are, where you came from, and ultimately how you became a Christian. Sure. I was born and raised in Burbank, California. I'm 24 now, so it's not a long life story, but it's got plenty of twists and turns to uh, give it some length anyway. <laughs> uh, I wasn't raised uh, going to church regularly. We were a nominally uh, Christian household. I was you know, told that I was a Christian growing up, but didn't really understand a lot of the significance of it. We probably went to church a handful of times and people invited us, but we, we weren't involved in one regularly, and I wasn't really familiar with the Bible. We went to a Benny Hinn revival service or healing service, whatever that was supposed to be exactly, when I think I was about six. And I stayed silent during a prayer there and was, uh, you know, ostensibly prayed. I don't even know if I understood the significance of it. But uh, the gist of all of this was supposed to have been that now we had committed ourselves to God and so we would have uh, a very prosperous life. It's a typical prosperity gospel of sort of saying, um, you know, instead of you serving God, God serves you. So now that you're a, a Christian, ostensibly, you're going to have a great life and health, wealth, and prosperity, and everything's going to be all, all hunky-dory for the rest of uh, your life, pretty much. This definitely didn't end up being the case. As a child, I got bullied in school, I was, I was fairly lonely, had some health problems, and so the years following that, I, uh, I felt like I had uh, sort of gotten the, the bad end of that deal. You know, I'd made this commitment and now God owed me, but he wasn't keeping up his end of the deal as I understood it. Of course, I should have been blaming the teaching that I'd received. You know, the Bible doesn't say any of those things. The Bible doesn't promise those things. I think this is the very first time that Benny Hinn has been mentioned on the Trinity's podcast, so <laughs> that's that's some kind of first there. Uh, so, were you uh, going to one of those faith movement Pentecostal churches, your family, after that experience? No, we didn't start going to church after that. Um, you know, maybe once in a blue moon if somebody invited us to a church, um, but we were we were pretty much just nominally Christians after that, but nominal Christians who expected a lot from God after that. Mm. I know you were a kid at the time, but uh, did your parents go to that because, you know, they had a big financial problem or a big health problem or something like that? Um, I'm not really sure what motivated it. I was pretty young at the time. Uh, my dad had some back problems and, and was in a lot of pain from that. So maybe there was sort of a motivation there of, of hoping that he could be healed from that. But I'm really not very mm -hmm. sure what motivated it. Mm -hmm. And did your parents have that same sense of disappointment afterwards? Like... 
you know, hey, we did we did what you said we were supposed to do, and how come we're not getting divine favor? It's a good question. I'm not really sure what they thought about it. I think that my mom may have sort of wondered some of those things after uh, after some of my health problems after that. You know, I'm sort of wondering where God was um, when those things were happening. So that led me to actually reject Christianity outright for a while. I became an atheist by name. Uh, I think it's probably true with many atheists that they're not really uh, atheists in the truest sense. Uh, you know, I, I believed in God. You know, if, if something really big came up, I would still pray to God, uh, you know, in an emergency or something. Um, but, you know, it was sort of just a matter of, uh, you know, I felt like God owed me and all these bad things had happened to me and, uh, and now he hadn't pulled through. So I was upset at God, really came to hate God. And, uh, of course, I think this is where a lot of atheism comes from, probably. This is just my theory, uh, is that, you know, there's really nothing that man can do against God. God's immortal. God is, is blessed and happy in himself. We can't do something to harm God when we hate God. So, about the worst things that people have figured out to do to try to get at God are to bother his people and to, you know, say he doesn't exist and blaspheme him. And that was what I, I turned to. You know, I would sort of mock people for being Christians and try to get them to doubt their faith. And, um, blasphemed a lot and just uh, embraced atheism as part of that. And I was uh, probably about 10 at the time, so I embraced that for a while. I actually even became like nominally Buddhist. I mean, as a 10-year-old, I wasn't able to, to go to a temple or something or, or really practice it in a very meaningful way, but just sort of found out about Buddhism, and that, that had a certain appeal to me for whatever reason, and um, sort of dabbled in that. And um, hmm. A few years later, I was uh, uh, getting bullied pretty badly in public school, and so my parents uh, decided to send me to a private Christian school, thinking that the people would be nicer there. It wasn't really religiously motivated. And this was true. People were nicer there. Um, I don't know how many of them were really uh, sincerely devoted to following Christ, but they were uh, a nice group of people. I uh, got bullied a lot less. and. Um, and so I went there, and for the first time, uh, I was really getting exposed to the Bible a lot now. I had to take a Bible class there, and uh, in conjunction with going there, we also started going to a church that was affiliated with the school. So that was uh, the first time I was regularly involved in a church, and um, the first time to be exposed to the Bible in a meaningful way. We went through the Gospel of Matthew, we went through an abridged, um, maybe aimed at kids version of A Case for Christ, um, uh, different things like that that were helpful to, to me, um, just I had thrown up a lot of barriers of sort of, you know, no reasonable person could be a Christian. How could anybody really believe this? And a lot of the apologetic stuff there really showed me that there was no basis for that, that, you know, there's nothing uh, unreasonable about being a Christian uh, in and of itself. And, and there's actually some some good reasons to, to believe the Bible over some of those secular claims. And so uh, I was exposed to the Bible now for the first time and began to believe the Bible and and sort of had a, a tenuous relationship with God where it was kind of, I, I still was pretty bitter against God for some of the things that had happened, but also was kind of willing to, to try becoming a Christian, um, but I wasn't committed all the way. But I began believing the Bible and reading the Bible, and I ended up reading the Bible a lot because I was so new to this and didn't have a familiarity with it. Everybody around me in church and in the school was, was pretty much familiar with basic Bible stuff, um, but I wasn't very familiar with it. Then this is, what, ninth or 10th grade, you're getting more serious? Yeah, it was in eighth grade that I went to the Christian school and, and started getting more serious mm -hmm. about it. I don't know what it is about those seventh and eighth graders, but they are mean little devils. I got bullied when I was in the seventh grade. That was like the apex of it right there. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people. I've, I've had lots of people mm -hmm. share that experience. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough time of life, I guess, <laughs> for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, a lot of changes in that stage of life. Um, so I began taking the Bible really seriously, though, um, and, and believing it. Uh, but at the same time, I came across passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the subtitle will usually call it the unforgivable sin. Jesus says this will not be forgiven in this age or the next. And, um, you know, in looking at back at it now, in hindsight, uh, I probably didn't actually commit that sin, I think. But at the time, as a new believer and uh, having blasphemed a lot before um, coming to that place, 
and especially with a, a very weak uh, or new understanding of the Trinity, just basically thinking, oh, the Trinity is, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit are, are three in one and one in three. So basically, if you've blasphemed one of them, you've blasphemed all of them because they're all the, the same one God. You know, I took it that even if I hadn't blasphemed the Holy Spirit by name, just by blaspheming God generally, I had committed the sin possibly. Um, and so mm. I became very... Three for the price of one. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> it, it was terrifying, though, um, because at this point, I now believe the Bible. I'd really come to the place where I believed the promises of what it was saying, but I also now thought that it was teaching me that I was sort of doomed to go to hell and that there was no way out of that for me. Jesus is pretty scary there, talking about it won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Mm-hmm. I was in this really terrifying place of believing the Bible and wanting to be saved, um, but not being totally sure if I could be saved. And I stayed in this state of being terrified for, for months. This was a pretty long ordeal. And uh, I really wrestled with that. Hmm. Um, and eventually, um, it, it took a long time, but the, the sort of resolution to that in the end was just coming to, to trust the promises of the Bible, trusting, you know, just basic things like John 3.16, that, you know, if you believe, uh, if you repent, you know, you will be saved, you will be forgiven. And just kind of saying, look, you know, with God, all things are possible. So, even if I did commit this, you know, these promises are true just as much as these threats are. And uh, I'm just going to follow God and, and trust that the promises, you know, of salvation are good for me. But this whole ordeal, as terrifying and and as miserable and and sort of torturous, really, as it was to think that I was hellbound, was good for me in that it really caused me to stop and uh, consider something about who God is and God's greatness, and it caused me to consider the the weight of my sin. To contemplate going to hell for blasphemy really makes you stop and say, you know, why is blasphemy so bad? You know, why is this actually so wrong that it would deserve something like that? Of course, my, my only conception of hell was just an eternal conscious torment at that time. I wasn't aware of other views on that, really. Mm-hmm. That was really tough to wrestle through. But it caused me to see God's glory in a new way. It caused me to see my sin in a new way and to really see my need for salvation and see that I, I really needed forgiveness. And um, that was good for me because I, that hadn't been clear enough to me before, I think, especially being around the prosperity gospel. A lot of the way that salvation was presented oftentimes was just sort of salvation is to have a prosperous life, to have an abundant life, to have good things. And not that those, there isn't uh, spiritually an abundant life that we do have, but, you know, the understanding the need for forgiveness and uh, and those sorts of things, God's justice, God's holiness, like I said, really just God's glory and God's greatness, um, to come to see why that was so evil to blaspheme him uh, was very good for me, I think. And I got to a place there where I was forced to sort of say, you know, I think I might be going to hell, you know, because this is what the Bible seems to say, and I believe it. You know, am I going to just sort of give up on this whole Christian thing and just try to live my life, you know, hedonistically and uh, see what I can get out of it in the meantime, or am I going to try to, to follow the Bible? And, uh, you know, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to follow the Bible. I'm going to try to glorify God as much as I can, because at this point, I'd just come to realize we exist because of God. We exist for God. And, and the rest is really vanity apart from God. And the rest is really worthless. And I said, you know, this is really what matters in my existence and in my life to glorify God and to serve him. And so that's what I want to try to do, even if that doesn't get me into heaven or even if I can't go to heaven. Uh, you know, I, I want to try to, to pursue that well I can and as I can. Praise God, I didn't stay in that state, because to know forgiveness and to know God's grace is a, a really beautiful thing. And there's something really lacking there, I think, when you're just thinking of it as sort of, you you know, God's wrath is upon you, but you want to glorify him anyway. Um, there's a relationship missing there and mm. a closeness, you know, knowing God as, as your father uh, and knowing his forgiveness. Um, and so that came with time, like I said, of just... Uh, coming to trust uh, the promises of the Bible in that, and then eventually coming mm-hmm. to a better understanding, I think, of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and, and of the Trinity, um, which I'm sure we'll get into more. <laughs> so, were you mostly struggling in your own mind with this, or did you talk to youth pastor or your parents? or? I talked to a lot of people about it. I talked to Bible teachers at the school that I was at. I did talk to the pastor of the church that we were going to and some of the people involved in youth ministry there. I didn't feel like a lot of the answers were super satisfying. Sometimes the answers were just seemed like sort of just dismissing the concern altogether, like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that, that would never happen to you. Um, 
there wasn't really any addressal of the part that dealt with the Trinity, certainly, um, but it was often just sort mm -hmm. of times uh, sort of an explanation that didn't seem to really flow from the text dealing with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Things like saying, you know, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is just rejecting the gospel your entire life and never believing. That didn't seem very compelling to me from the text. There was nothing exegetically in any of these passages that I now practically knew by heart um, that would really lend itself to, to that as a very uh, reassuring explanation. What did you eventually decide then about how that verse should be taken? I sort of came to a point of crisis where I was really praying a lot, just asking God for forgiveness and asking if I could be saved. And I thought I saw a sign from God. Um, I saw a microwave clock that said 316 at the wrong time of day when I was praying. And, I, you know, who knows? You know, I mean, I think God is sovereign and God can do those things. But, you know, the, the value of that was not so much the seeing the 316, I think, as it was just driving me back to the Bible and to the promises of the Bible. And it forced me to go back to John 316 and, and other passages like it and just say, look, you know, these promises are just as real as these threats. And if I'm believing and repenting, then I can be forgiven. Sounds like you kind of uh, said, well, whatever that passage means, anyway, it seemed like God had sort of opened your heart where you knew that you could be forgiven. And so you didn't have to necessarily come up with an interpretation of that passage that would explain why you haven't already doomed yourself with your youthful misdeeds. Right. No, I didn't have a, a really good understanding of the passage or how that would fit with my ability mm -hmm. to be saved for the time. Later on, when I got into reading the Church Fathers, there were some things that I read that helped me there. It seems like that same sin is mentioned in the Didache, and the Didache sort of presents it um, in an interesting way of just there's, there's these itinerant prophets that the Didache assumes you're going to be coming in contact with, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit there seems to be to look at one of these prophets and maybe reject them as a true prophet after you've come to, to reasonably understand that they are a prophet or that sort of thing. And so I think the way that I tend to look at that now is, you know, probably blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be understood by the early church just in terms of somebody speaking or doing things by the Holy Spirit and you, you can see it's the Holy Spirit, you know, then if you're like attributing that to demons or something or denying the, the validity of, of the Holy Spirit's action there, that might sort of be what's in view. Which, you know, that being the case, I don't think is something that, you know, I, I would see as common today um, or, or very easy for somebody to commit today. Because I don't think that we tend to find ourselves in those situations where we're interacting with prophets, doing things by the Holy Spirit, and could see that and, and make a wrong conclusion from that or blaspheme there. Well, yeah, Jesus says somewhere, if you receive him, you receive the one that sent him. And presumably, if you reject him, you're rejecting the one who sent him. So I would think that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context of his ministry would have to do with like you said, no, that's not God working, that's something else going on. But then you're just rejecting the grace of God right in your face, basically. And it sounds like something a typical high schooler in California probably hasn't done, even if they were an atheist for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like that much evidence right in your face is a kind of unusual thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a pretty extraordinary sin in in most cases. I mean, I think that you're you're definitely dealing with something extraordinary. You know, I would mm -hmm. I would tend to view it as, you know, if you're seeing a genuine prophet working or you're seeing Christ working, then maybe the door is open to that more so than somebody who's just rejecting the Bible more broadly and doesn't see those things, doesn't interact with those things on a personal level. Mhm. Mm when the Trinity's podcast returns, more of Mr. Davis's spiritual journey. take us forward. Once you got over that petrifying fear, what happened next? You know, I was still really a, a brand new Christian. Uh, I got baptized in 2009. 
that was sort of where I would say that crisis largely ended. You know, I'd, I'd struggled with that for about a year or, or a little bit less than a year. I still sort of had lingering worries about that, but it, it just generally got better. Just growing in the knowledge of the Bible. Um, I was going to an evangelical Baptist uh, church, Calvinistic Baptist, and um, continued to grow just in knowledge there. Wanted, you know, I was, I think I was pretty zealous for God and for evangelism and, um, you know, really just wanted to serve God well, but I also still really felt like I was behind everybody around me in terms of understanding, you know, because I hadn't really been raised with the Bible, like a lot of the people mm-hmm. um, who were around me in the youth group were. Um, I think I think a lot of people in the youth group were really uh, solid people, um, you know, really Christians and really devoted to Christ and the Bible. And so that was a good environment for me to be in there. Uh, it was kind of a time characterized for me just by a lot of questions. I always had questions for the uh, the pastor and um, and the people in charge of youth ministry. Uh, there was a, a fella who I became friends with who was volunteering in the, the youth group who sort of took me under his wing. He's a really brilliant guy. He's a Reformed Presbyterian now and uh, a really brilliant guy and was uh, willing and, and able to answer a lot of my questions. And so I really struck up a friendship with him. And uh, that was sort of what characterized high school for me in terms of my walk with God. Come senior year of high school, I finally came to be really properly Trinitarian in the modern sense, probably. Prior to this, I'd been basically Unitarian, although I, I wouldn't have known what that meant or, or known any of the, the technical terminology or higher concepts there. But I just remember, for instance, when I was really distressed and praying to God, asking if I could be saved or if he would forgive me for my sins. And I remember wondering, should I be praying to God as Trinity or should I be praying to the Father? You know, who exactly am I? supposed to be praying to here because I was getting a lot of the Trinitarian stuff from the churches I was at, but I was also really going through the Bible a lot. And I knew that in the Bible, it seemed like God was just the Father and prayer was directed to the Father. And so I really erred on that because the other seemed unbiblical to me. You know, there is no place where the Bible talks about a triune God or a, a God who's tripersonal or Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I that was really where the question at at that time for me was, was just who do I pray to? It wasn't an abstract question um, like it would become later as when I dived into the Trinity later on. And, and I remember being bothered by some of the songs that were sung as well. There's a pretty common hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's a very common mm-hmm. one. And I remember yeah. being bothered by that. Um, and I couldn't really put my finger very well on why, but just that it seemed unbiblical. You know, I knew that the Lord God Almighty in Revelation was the Father. You know, he interacts with the Lamb and everything, and the Lamb is Jesus. So I knew that wasn't like both of them together. So I remember being bothered by those things, but I had no real resources for pursuing that much. It was just sort of me and my Bible kind of doubting that some of the things that I was hearing in church were were necessarily correct. But as I stayed in that Trinitarian church, I eventually became a pretty convinced Trinitarian. I remember my senior year of high school, I think I may have been reading the church's doctrinal statement, and it something I thought clicked at the time, and I basically became a modalistic Trinitarian. I think most modern Trinitarianism is fundamentally modalistic, just in terms of the conception of the Trinity for most people, I think, is that God is one person who somehow is Father, Son, and Spirit, whether that's manifesting himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, whether that's eternally existing as those three, or the three names for the one person. You know, the oneself Trinitarianism, I think, is is really just a mm-hmm. leg away from modalism. Yeah. I mean, certainly by the way almost all Christians talk, it sounds like they think God is a self. Right. They never call God they or them. It's always he and him. Right. With a capital letter. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you had been exposed to some apologetics types arguments, you know, the Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God. Those three are different. There's only one God, so therefore Trinity, that type of... It wasn't even that advanced. It was more a matter of... Um you know, okay, um, the Father is yod heh vav and the Son is also called yod heh vav and I'm not even sure where, supposedly, they were able to prove that the Spirit's called yod heh vav but I got it in my mind that, okay, there's basically this one person who is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, and then in the New Testament, all three persons of the Trinity are identified as that one person. And so, therefore, oh, okay. it's a one person in three persons yeah. sort of deal. Yeah, well, someone probably told you that Lord is the substitute for the divine name. 
And so they call Jesus Lord, so they must be calling him that same divine name. Sure. And it was a little bit more advanced than just that. I think it was also looking at passages mm-hmm. that quoted the Old Testament, where God is referred to by that name, and it seems to be applied to Christ. Uh, and so, I looked at those and said, oh, that means that Jesus is yod heh of the Old Testament. Um, oh, where Jesus is a fulfillment of a prophecy right. that was originally about God. Right. Like uh, calling upon the name of the Lord and, and things like exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Those sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a whole other conversation. Definitely. Okay. So, you're a pretty happy uh, Calvinist, uh, learning a lot. You have a good mentor. The Calvinism part didn't bother you. I know some people, it kind of makes them a little unhappy, uh, but uh, people differ in their experience with that. How did the Calvinistic side strike you? Or was that something that you even thought very much about? Yeah, it wasn't something that I had thought a ton about until um, I met that that fellow who mentored me, and uh, and then he he was a very convinced Calvinist, uh, very reformed, and uh, he, he convinced me. I thought that he made a good biblical case for it. Uh, you know, I was pretty much a, an Arminian, I guess you'd call it. I believed in free will, you know, and and a very libertarian sort of free will and that sort of thing that isn't really uh, popular with Calvinism, but. Uh, he took me to Romans 9 and some of those passages and was just able to make a, what I thought was a, a pretty compelling exegetical case for Calvinism, and so that convinced me. Um, and my attitude mm-hmm. towards it was just basically, you know, I just want to believe whatever the Bible says, you know. Um, uh, I believe that God is perfect, and it's sort of like, whatever God is, however God is, you know, He's perfect, I know that. And so, I wanted to avoid taking my sort of presuppositions on what God's justice might look like or, or what I thought perfection might look like and demanding that God fit that and just instead saying, look, I, I know God's perfect in and of himself and, and absolutely you know, sinless and everything. So, let me just go to the Bible and try to figure out what it says he's like. And, and so, Calvinism was kind of weird, but you know, if it's what the Bible teaches, I was happy to accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At one time when I was a, a college student, I had convinced myself that Romans 9 just straight up teaches Calvinism, basically. Been there. Also remember scratching my head about that same hymn, although when I was a kid, I didn't really look into it at all, but it just, it wasn't obvious how it fit together with what we normally went around saying about God in church, so. Yeah, I wonder how many people hear those things and and have doubts about them, but there's also, there is an effort to indoctrinate people as well, I think. And so, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people sort of share my experience where they became a Christian and they were more Unitarian in their outlook, you know, just because the Bible always, you know, just God and God and the Father are constantly equated throughout the New Testament because, you know, obviously I believe they're, they're one and the same person, one and the same being, you know. But even if you don't understand the details of that, just the fact that, you know, God and Father are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, I think, just leads a lot of people to be probably Unitarians right off the bat, even though they wouldn't understand it that way or necessarily reject the Trinity. And then I think as people grow in knowledge, they oftentimes um, come to reject that and become more more genuinely Trinitarian. That was certainly what happened for me, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, theologians and apologists frequently lament that the uh, the laity are hardly trinitarian at all. I think they're right, but I don't think it's a bad thing. <laughs> I used to, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the people in my circles were modalistic, which I would agree is not properly trinitarian, but it's also not very encouraging to me either. I think that modalism is is pretty problematic. It really does depend, I think, a lot on how long a person's been in the church and they've been around stuff. Because I think that a lot of the proper Trinitarianism is a little bit high-minded for the average person to try to really get. Um, you get really philosophical with some of the Nicene distinctions and, and different things. And so, I think a lot of times when people go from sort of just a basic Unitarian just from reading their Bible to being Trinitarian, quote unquote, they're really going modalist and uh, without realizing it, because that's that's basically a very simplified version of Trinitarianism, as it's presented typically as just modalism, um, the one God manifests Himself as yeah, Father, Son, Spirit. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, because you know, you and you and me manifest in different ways, or we play different roles at the same time, things like that. I think ordinary Christians. To a large extent, they're kind of terrified of the subject because it doesn't make sense. And they've sort of been told that, you know, the experts need to handle this and you're not really qualified. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they want to embarrass themselves or say anything heretical or maybe even make God mad by 
saying wrong things. And then, yeah, once you've been programmed with the kind of Nicene orthodoxy, you know, then now you're very proud that you know how to deploy all these distinctions and all this fancy language. And even if you don't, you don't actually have a view that makes a lot of sense, well, at least you know the things that are supposed to be said and the things that are not supposed to be said. So it's like you have this kind of insider's key. You're able to kind of speak the code. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know the terminology. You don't necessarily wonder about what it means, you know, or, or the justification of it or whether it's even coherent. But I mean, it's it's delivered to you as this precious kind of gnosis in a sense. Mm-hmm. Can't even necessarily be really, you know, talked about with the unwashed masses and Joe Sixpack. I guess I'm, what I'm saying is there's a kind of elitism that enters into it, I think. Definitely. And I'm not saying I've been exempt from it. I think I was a part of it. You know, when I got to the stage where I was speculating about the Trinity and so on. Sure. Yeah, I think that people are really discouraged from looking into it. I know I was. You know, I think that it's just kind of presented as being very dangerous to look into, you know, and especially mm. dangerous to get wrong, right? It's okay if you want to look into it, like you said, in terms of, of sort of coming to speak the Trinitarian lingo and just embrace what you're told without questioning it. But as soon as you start to question it, now that's very, very dangerous and it threatens your standing in the church that you're in, it threatens your, your social connections there. So there's a lot of, um, you know, just social baggage to it. And it's also just deemed to be dangerous to your soul. So I think... I remember, you know, at certain points in high school, I think I remember, you know, kind of wondering more about the Trinity and and Arianism and wondering, you know, if I were to study this, you know, which side would I come out on? You know, if I really studied it just as honestly as I could, you know, would I would I come out a Trinitarian? Mm. And that didn't cause me to look into it. It caused me to stay away from looking into it because, you know, it's dangerous. Mm. You know, Arians go to hell. So, um, you know, I better not look into this yeah. or I could get deceived and end up uh, end up going to hell for it. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of brilliant Christian professors about this. Uh, I can think off the top of my head of one theologian and one philosopher, and they do really good work, and they're they're just as smart as anybody out there, but they don't want to know the answer to that question, because <laughs> it just looks like no good can become of it, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the cost is pretty high. If you stay vague, you can be friends with everybody, but if you have a specific position... You're really sticking your neck out and, you know, who knows, you might find yourself on the wrong side of orthodoxy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where the story goes for me. You sound like a question asker, though. Like, you were always like the kid that had one more question to follow up every answer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I had a lot of questions. Yeah. I was very curious. I just, I really wanted to understand and uh, it seemed like there was a lot to know. I mean, especially... You know, with with Calvinism and with and with the Trinity as well. I mean, a, a lot of theology is is really there's a lot of depth to it. You know, there's a lot to understand, and I was very curious, uh, wanted to understand it in depth. When you're a kid, you're just curious, and you don't want to be confused anymore. You know, you you realize you have a lot to know, so you just shoot questions out there like a machine gun, right? And right. until some authority figure tells you that that's bad, you shouldn't do it classic case of the smart young Catholic who has the nun and the priest wrap their knuckles or tell them to shut up and just have faith. And they do that when the person's 10 and when they're 30, they still remember it and they're still kind of mad about it because <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were shut down. Right. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Davis shares with us more of his spiritual journey. So yeah, I became a a convinced Trinitarian towards the end of high school. Um, That'd be around 2012 um, that I really became convinced of the Trinity in the modern sense, which again, I I really think was just modalism with not wanting to be a modalist added to it. 
So I was Trinitarian for a time and was pretty zealous for that. I went to Utah on a missions trip in early college and informed the Mormons that they were hellbound for rejecting a, a proper understanding of the Trinity and just did a did a lot of the things that I guess are pretty standard for, for evangelicals when they believe the Trinity. Um, and I just accepted it as a divine mystery and especially because I was... Um, the, the circles I was in, it was more of a modalistic understanding of the Trinity. I think that it was, um, it wasn't even that confusing comparatively. I mean, it was a mystery of how one person can be three persons, but a lot of the Nicene or older scholastic um, distinctions and things, eternal generation, procession, pr- procession of the Holy Spirit, those things were just absent from the discussion entirely. And of course, I didn't put it in terms of one person being three persons. It was one being in three persons. But uh, what I meant by being mm-hmm. wasn't one abstract being, one nature. You know, uh, I think like what most people mean by I meant one individual being, like you said, somebody you can call a he, somebody you can pray to, um, you know, really one God, really a person mm-hmm. in three persons, even though nobody wants mm-hmm. to say that being a person yeah. mean the same thing there. Yeah. I mean, a God is by definition a person. If a person is just a personal being, right. you know, a God is just a super duper person. Absolutely. To put it really crudely. Well, and, and I think that, well, we got into this some before when we, we talked. I think that being a god has a lot to do with authority, too. It's sort of my take on, mm-hmm. on godhood, but we could maybe return to that later. When you, when you say modalist, uh, modalist, but not wanting to be a modalist, you know, you would, I take it, say that the persons are eternal, so you don't have one after the other. You would just have God existing sort of in three personalities or something? Yeah, this is where I think my my understanding of what modalism is is a little bit different than um, what you often hear today. I think most Trinitarians today want to say modalism is only the view that God is one person who is uh, consecutively Father, then Son, then Spirit in some fashion. He's never all three at Mm -hmm. the same time. My background in patristics and the church fathers sort of leads me to say, no, that's not really all that modalism is, because in the early church, uh, this consecutive aspect of it was not really part of the definition of what modalism was. Um, you, you see fathers like Athanasius and Basil of Caesarea speak of modalism as any view that just says that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one and the same being. And of course, it might be a more mm-hmm. rational way to, and I mean individual being or person there, not, not generic essence, because um, mm-hmm. obviously they believe that. But I don't think for them it was important whether it was uh, sort of a turn-taking deal where, where God is one-time Father, one-time Son, one-time Spirit. I don't think it matters there so much yeah. whether that's uh, simultaneous and eternal or consecutive. I think that really just classically what modalism is, is is any view that would say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one and the same rational individual being or one and the same person. That's why when I approach the discussion, I don't really buy the whole, well, we're not modalists because we think that they're eternally three persons, not one mm-hmm. person taking turns. You know, I say, well, okay, you know, if you, if you change the definition of modalism, then, then you're not a modalist. But, you know, really by, by the original standards, you know, that the early church dealt with this with, you would, your, your view of Trinitarianism would be a, a Trinit, uh, a modalistic Trinitarianism, if you would, um, rather than really a Nicene Trinitarianism. Cause of course, I, I don't believe that Nicaea, intended there to be any any one being that is Father, Son, and Spirit. I think that with Nicaea, Father, Son, and Spirit were three beings, three rational persons um, who shared one generic nature, right? Um, and it, it was, I think, a, a bit later on that you really get the popularization of the idea that they're all one individual. Um, you mean the Nicene Creed as revised in 381? Yeah, I think that the Nicene Creed um, in 381 was... I don't think that in itself it's modalistic, but I think that sort of like you've said um, in other occasions, you know, I think that what's really behind it was a vindication of this modalistic view. I think that throughout the, the 50 years or so between Nicaea and Constantinople, you have a development in the Nicene camp where originally a lot of the pro-Nicene were, people were more in, uh, along the lines of saying the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three individuals, three three rational individual beings, and, and they share common nature. Um, there was also people in that camp who were more modalistic, um, and some of them were condemned for modalism. You know, Marcellus of Ancyra mm-hmm. uh, was deposed yep. for being a modalist, um, and he had been a strong supporter of Nicaea and Homoousius. Yep. And so I think what you really have happen is that in the Nicene camp, because there is that modalistic element in that camp, um, that they can affirm that language of homoousius, that you have people like Basil who, who want to 
to maintain that the Father and Son and the Spirit are three distinct beings with one nature, but they're not really able to steer the Nicene party in that direction, and it sort of ends up being this cross between that modalism, I think. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's really what ends mm-hmm. up getting vindicated in 381, because by that time, you know, Basil was already dead, and, and so was Athanasius. A lot of those earlier people were, were dead by the time that Nicaea really won. Um, that's often not really included in, in the popular telling of the story. You know, the, the popular telling is Athanasius took on the world and won, but he really didn't. He died um, sort of on the losing side of things, and it was, you know, afterwards that Theodosius uh, sort of revived the Nicene Creed as a standard for the church. Quite a guy, Athanasius. Uh, <laughs> but going back to modalism, myself, I, I kind of just surrendered the word modalist to the, the Trinitarian mainstream. If you want to just define modalism as the persons of the Trinity, or at least the Son and the Spirit, are mere modes, and you want to say to be modalism, they have to be serial, one after the other, or they have to not be essential, fine, okay, if that's what you want to call modalism, then whatever. I'll just call it a oneself trinity then, um, if they're eternal and they're in some sense equal. Years ago, I did a series of blog posts on the Trinity's blog called Islam-Inspired Modalism. And I was reading both Catholic and evangelical apologists interacting with Islam and, you know, the Muslim's constant complaint is, hey, how can this be monotheism? Isn't it tritheism? And they respond just by, you know, giving what you would call just an obviously modalistic formula. You have one God that kind of lives in three ways. And well, yeah, if you have one God that lives in three ways, that is monotheism. So they've taken away all appearance of tritheism by not making the persons be beings. They've demoted them to modes of the one divine being. So kind of philosophically it works, but I think it, it's a total train wreck when it comes to interpreting the New Testament. Absolutely. Most of the problems that I would see with Trinitarianism, I think, are really problems that I would see with modalism that I, I think Trinitarianism has now because of the fact that mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, basically adopted modalism in large part. Um, not to say that's all of them, but I think most of them are more serious problems. You know, modalism was considered a pretty serious heresy in the early church, um, you know, and a lot of that was because you know, people viewed it as a denial of the existence of the Son. You know, the modalists would say, you know, well, it's it's one person who's Father and Son, and, and most of the early church fathers who responded to this say, well, if you're saying they're one person, then you really don't believe that God has a Son. You don't really believe that there is a Son. You know, it's just a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that was deemed to be pretty serious, and I think not without reason, because, you know, that's it's very, very central to Christianity and to the Christian confession that God has a son and that, you know, uh, he who has the son has life. Yeah, no son or no logos. So, how did you go from being a confident Trinitarian to starting to question that stance? I don't remember if it was my senior or junior year of high school. I started reading the Church Fathers. I had read through the Bible once and was going to keep going through it, but it just seemed like a natural progression to me now to read the Church Fathers as well, kind of starting at the earliest and working my way through. At the time, I just thought this was normal. It seemed natural. I, I found out that nobody else did this, um, and I tried to talk to other people about what I was reading. Um, it's a lot of hard reading. It is. It is. It stretched my ability to read because I was used to reading modern literature and modern literature, you know, Mm -hmm. modern Christian books and stuff, you know, I think most books today, they aren't very meaty, especially if they're made for lay people. You sort of get the same idea restated a few different ways and illustrated a couple of different times before they move on to something else. A lot of times, the church fathers are not like that. Um, <laughs> you know, it is it is thick. Um, I don't know if it's just because they were so much smarter than we are, or if it's because uh, the cost of ink and paper was so high that they just needed to be concise. But, I mean, you know, one sentence of, of Justin Martyr can have, you know, what would be covered in, you know, a, a short chapter of a book sometimes in, in a modern work, I think. You know, it's just, it's really condensed and there's a lot of meaning in every in every clause of every sentence. Um, so, that was a challenge for me, definitely, to get used to trying to understand that. I had to, to read pretty slowly. But it was worthwhile to me because I had all these questions. You know, I wanted to, to understand how the early church understood different things. You know, I, I knew that if I was interpreting things totally differently than the early church was, that should probably make me re-examine a given issue. If I went to the earliest church fathers and they were all Roman Catholic and, you know, Peter was on the chair, you know, I, I thought maybe that would be a good reason to reconsider Roman Catholicism, for instance. Um, 
So I really wanted to see mm-hmm. what was the early church like. You know, did, did it look anything like the church that I was at? Did it, you know, what did they believe about the Bible? You know, were they reading it the same way I was? I had questions about the law of Moses and stuff as well, and how that was understood. Now, this is when you were a college student. This was late high school um, and and leading into college. Okay. I went to the Master's College. It's now the Master's University, um, and uh, it's a, mm-hmm. a really enjoyable experience for the most part. It's a Christian liberal arts college, liberal arts university, I suppose now. Uh, that changed since I graduated a few years ago. Uh, when I went there, I continued reading through the Church Fathers. Um, I did this in my, my spare time. I would procrastinate doing homework to read Church Fathers because I, I just found that more interesting than a lot of my gen eds. Um, and I was really mm-hmm. driven by just a lot of these questions, you know, uh, questions over the law and things like that. Uh, with the Mosaic Law, I, I looked into Messianic Judaism and their arguments. And uh, as you probably know, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo is important for that. So I was happy when I got to that and uh, was reading through that pretty closely and wanting to understand and, you know, how the early church viewed those matters. I wasn't looking for anything on the Trinity, but this is where I came across Justin talking about the Logos being begotten before creation by God, and then God creating everything through the Logos. And that was really strange for me, because, of course, I was a Trinitarian, so I looked at this and said, wow, Justin Martyr's a heretic. You know, this is shocking. You know, why is he a heretic? It didn't make sense because if the apostles were all good Trinitarians, you know, just 70 years prior or whatever, Justin's really early. You know, how did he get to this point of, of being such a heretic? But it didn't take me very long mm. before I started questioning who was the heretic um, when I realized that the language that he uses is pretty much New Testament language in large part in terms of, of God being the Father and Jesus being another being besides God, which of course I had basically rejected when I became mm-hmm. Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not anything idiosyncratic about your reading. I mean, as far as I know, all the good interpreters of Justin Martyr think that he assumes that God brought the Logos into existence when it was time to create, basically. Yeah. So, in other words, he has, like the notorious Arians, he has the uh, pre-human Jesus coming into existence. Right. Well, this is where I began to get in trouble, because I talked to friends at college and at church about this, and I came to agree with Justin pretty quickly and say, yeah, you know, I think this seems to be a lot more biblical than what I believe right now. I think he's right. And that caused me to question things like Christ's eternality. I didn't outright reject it, but I just, you know, questioned it and said, look, if Jesus is caused by the Father, which, you know, certainly what Justin is saying and certainly seemed to fit with what the Bible says um, as far as I was reading it. And so I said, well, you know, if he's caused by the Father, typically the, the cause precedes the effect, the effects after the cause. So, makes me think that maybe the sun isn't eternal. Um, you know, maybe the sun has a beginning. And for this, I was uh, informed that I was an Arian, um, which I did not know what Arianism was, really, at the time. Um, I hadn't gotten anywhere near that far in reading mm. the Church Fathers. But I was informed that I was an Arian, nonetheless, for questioning these things. Uh, got in trouble with my church, got in trouble with the school. Somebody uh, that I talked to about it uh, talked to one of the Bible professors about it, and basically word got back to him that I was I was talking to people about these things, and um, they were con- pretty concerned over that. Uh, I was told that it could affect my stay there, and I went and met with this professor, and uh, he explained his views to me, and I, I, I agreed to not talk about it anymore with other people at the school, basically, and that was sort of how that resolved, and I was, I was very thankful to get to stay at the school. I didn't want to leave. You know, I had a lot of money invested mm-hmm. in being there, you know, and, and uh, I, I enjoyed the school overall a lot. And so I really didn't want to get kicked out over this. It was very distressing for me uh, to be in that situation. It was equally distressing with church. Um, I was very committed to my church and, and wanted to be a part of it. I was serving in children's ministry and I uh, got temporarily removed from children's ministry over this, um, which seemed odd to me at the time. I mean, four-year-olds aren't going to be understanding Arianism. But, <laughs> uh, but that was the concern. On- yeah, no, I laugh. I shouldn't laugh, though, because that's hurtful. You know, you put your heart into something like that, and now you're treated like you got the plague or something. Oh, yeah. No, I was, I, I do not feel that I was treated well uh, during that time. Um, I, was, I was basically given a gag order. I couldn't talk to people about it. I could only talk to people in leadership about it. But the people in leadership also didn't seem very interested in talking to me about it. I kept trying to talk to one of the pastors about it, but I kept getting put off by him. Uh, You know, we'd have a a meeting set for a few weeks out, and then, you know, he'd cancel the day of. And this kind of went on for months. 
I wish I could say this is the first time I've heard a story like this, but it's not. I mean, I'm friends with a young man right now who's a junior in college and yeah, basically the same script played out. I mean, he wasn't an Aryan. He was more coming to biblical Unitarian views, but I mean, they essentially told him to shut up and man, as a former college professor, I'm pretty offended by this. Like, how can you tell a student to stop asking questions? Like, oh, you're so dangerous, you know, aren't we here to learn? Yeah. And he was assigned to kind of be reprogrammed by people who knew better, but they didn't really want to do it. And yeah, he's going to end up finishing his final year somewhere else. Yeah. It's a really sad situation. It's, it's a difficult thing to go through. I don't understand the power move being played on a student. Like I just, I was really disappointed yeah. from an academic standpoint, you know, because, you know, it's a college, you know, especially rather than the church, you know, uh, I would have hoped for maybe more, more willingness to openly discuss ideas and stuff rather than kind of having this looming threat of being kicked out if you don't shut up. But yeah. that was sort of where it was. And, and like I said, you know, I, I really wanted to stay there. So I just, I went along with it. And this was really, really hard on me with, with both my church and my school having the situation. And so what this sort of uh, pushed me into was accepting Nicaea, because Nicaea preserved the one God being the Father. It preserved Jesus Christ being another being besides God. It preserved Jesus being begotten and caused by the Father. So all of the things mm -hmm. that I cared about most from Justin were there, but it also incorporated, you know, the co-equality and the co-eternality that my church and my school were so um, set that I had to accept. And so mm -hmm. I accepted Nicaea with some difficulty. And that was sort of where I stayed for quite a while. I think it was sort of shoehorned in, you know, it was sort of like, okay, well, if you believe that he's begotten before creation and creation includes time, then you believe he's begotten before time. And that's eternal generation. So you really believe that he's eternal. And so you should be able to accept Nicaea. Um, and so under a lot of pressure, I did. And, uh, you know, I accepted it sincerely, although under pressure, and I became very zealously Nicaean. That was my sophomore year of college. And throughout college, I was really mm -hmm. committed to Nicaea. Because of all of this, you know, I really just thought that these are really important subjects. You know, this is who God is, who Christ is. And so all other theological subjects really went on the back burner for the most part. And uh, I continued reading the Church Fathers in a lot of depth, but I limited it to the Trinity for the most part. And so I, I went through and tried to really study what they said about the Trinity, read a lot of fourth century fathers, and uh, tried to understand how they understood it. Um, and of course, there are some, some pretty different views there, um, even among the ones that are considered Trinitarian different concepts and things. I was very strongly Nicene then. I liked Athanasius. I liked Basil. I loved Cyril of Jerusalem. Didn't like Augustine because Augustine was what you'd call a one-self Trinitarian. You know, I basically mm -hmm. thought that he was part of the problem, you know. Uh, I was in this interesting situation where I was very committed to Nicene Trinitarianism and really learned the, the philosophy behind it and, and a lot of the technicalities. And yet, I wasn't very accepted by most modern Trinitarians, and uh, I, I didn't have a very um, happy view of the way that things had turned out, because even though Nicaea ostensibly won, most Christians today are not Nicene Trinitarians in, in any true sense. You know, most Christians today have no concept of eternal generation or eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, I think most modern Trinitarians are, are modalistic, and so... It was a pretty bleak view for me, and I said, look, if, if most Trinitarians are modalists, then this isn't that great. I need to, to try to change things. So I started a website, uh, called it Contramodalism, where I was just arguing from this Nicene standpoint against a lot of modern Trinitarianism and trying to kind of just correct what I thought was just a misconception. I wasn't really sure how it had happened. This was a big question for me was, how do we go from three beings sharing one nature to one being who is three personas or three persons? It's a pretty enormous change when you get down to it. You know, in that 50 years or so, or half a century or so between Nicaea and Constantinople, it really is a huge change. And so I was very committed to this this uh, primitive Trinitarianism, this nice, this truly Nicaean Trinitarianism uh, was my thing. And uh, I was very uh, into that for a long time. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Davis reconsiders his stance on Sola Scriptura.
contemporaneous with this, I began to change my mind on Sola Scriptura, um, where I had been very committed to the idea of Sola Scriptura and wanting to only accept the things that I saw proved from the Bible, because you know, I, I was aware that there's a lot of different views out there. I, I almost went to a Roman Catholic school instead of uh, an evangelical school, and so I knew I could have ended up being indoctrinated with Roman Catholicism instead of evangelicalism or in any other Christian view. So. I had a very cautious attitude at the outset of things, um, but I gradually lost that and ended up convinced of Catholicity by my Reformed Presbyterian friend. Um, and by that, I just mean this concept that you need to be Catholic with a lowercase c. So the whole idea is, you know, you're basically being prideful and sinful to think for yourself too much. You know, God has given you a church and you just basically need to submit to what the church has ruled throughout the ages. You know, the teaching power is in the church. Church is the one to really be able to tell you what the Bible means. So don't lean on your own understanding. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but the small c Catholic Church, which includes Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and most Protestants. Yes, which I think is very problematic in hindsight, because, you know, what is the church there anyway? That's a, a huge flaw with that view, I think, is that, especially for a Protestant, there is no very good answer to how do you figure out what really is the church, which councils do you have to listen to, which ones don't you have to listen to. But uh, I, was, I was working through this, um, and I, it led me to become Reformed Presbyterian. I became a member of a Reformed Presbyterian church, uh, along with my wife. I was now married uh, after I graduated from college. And the appeal to that was really just that it was more traditional. Um, this was a very conservative Presbyterian church. It wasn't traditional in the sense of being like high church, like looking like Roman Catholicism. It was uh, just like John Knox's Presbyterianism, saying only Psalms, uh, no holidays, other than uh, Sunday being the Sabbath, um, very strict Sabbatarianism and stuff. Um, it was an older view, right? It was really going back to something that was uh, around in the 1500s and had sort of been unchanged you know, as a very minority position since then. So this, uh, this appealed to the Catholicity, and I accepted a lot of the, the peculiarities of this group, basically on the basis of, hey, this is the traditional Presbyterian view, so, you know, I need to submit to the church, and, you know, I don't really see how you can get only singing psalms out of the Bible, but, you know, this is what John Knox and them said, so, you know, they know better than I do. And so that led me to be Reformed Presbyterian for a while, but it wasn't very long before I began to pick up on these inconsistencies and say, hey, look, you know, the Westminster Assembly might be authoritative, but what about all these other councils before the Westminster Assembly? You know, why are we accepting Westminster and rejecting Second Nicaea that says you need to bow down to icons and venerate them and stuff? Um, you know, if it's all just a matter of, of tradition and church authority, then, you know, on what basis do we reject some and accept others? And, and so this led me to almost become Eastern Orthodox. And part of the pull of Eastern Orthodoxy as well was, you know, they're very into the patristics especially the Nicene-era patristics, um, Basil the Great and Athanasius are, are big names for Eastern Orthodoxy. They're not very Augustinian. And some of them, as, as you know well, because uh, you've, you've had some of uh, Dr. Bronson's uh, material on the show before, uh, some of them are basically Unitarian Trinitarians, if, if I can say that without uh, <laughs> sounding too absurd, you know, in the sense that, you know, there's a, definitely a belief in a divine triad of, of three beings, which is what they would mean by being Trinitarian, but it's Unitarian in the sense of, you know, the one God isn't that whole Trinity, it's the first person of the Trinity, the Father. I had maintained a very strong commitment to this, you know, as being Nicene, and so Eastern Orthodoxy was able to appeal to me in those respects and came very close to converting. My wife and I were meeting with a priest, and I was basically convinced of it. Uh, it was just a matter of time before we were going to convert. A number of factors, thankfully, prevented me from doing that. One of them was realizing that later on, Eastern Orthodoxy slips into the same sort of triune God theology that the West does. And... I have a real problem with that, even just as a Nicene believer, I had a, a problem with the idea of a triune God, because like I said, I think that's really modalistic rather than truly Nicene. And so to see that error crop up in Eastern Orthodoxy later on made me say, well, look, how can this be infallible tradition if this enters the tradition? This isn't compatible with Nicaea and these earlier teachers. This is something Basil would have called modalism. And so, you know, how does that work to have that, that coming in later down the road? How can that be infallible? There was other factors as well. The biggest one was just returning to Sola Scriptura. I'm probably one of very few people who have been helped by the Church Fathers in coming to Sola Scriptura. Again, 
because generally people who read the fathers, um, especially if they're being led by Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholics, there'd be a big focus on, on some of the fathers who hold tradition in very high authority. But there were some fathers who basically held the view of Sola Scriptura and articulated just sticking to what the Bible says. It, you know, Cyril of Jerusalem is one of them. He says, uh, you know, don't just listen to what I tell you. Look for demonstration from the scriptures. Um, Clement of Alexandria was a big one for me. He has a chapter in, I think, book seven of his Stramata, sort of devoted to, you know, how do you really know what's true doctrinally with all these different heresies around? And his answer is the Bible, you know, demonstration from scripture. It's not surely tradition. You know, he did, like I think all early church fathers hold tradition in some esteem, but as far as actually how you know what you should believe, it was all, uh, you know, just go back to the Bible and see things demonstrated carefully from the Bible. And that was the view that I, I came to readopt. And so I was really in an interesting situation now. Um, I was still a member of this Reformed Presbyterian Church, but I was, of course, no longer really committed to anything particularly Presbyterian after almost going Eastern Orthodox. And so, really just said, I need to get back to the Bible. You know, my thinking had been altered so much by this view of tradition and uh, adopting Protestant traditions and Eastern Orthodox traditions. And I said, look, I just need to go back to the Bible and, and start applying Sola Scriptura consistently to these different areas of theology again. And when I started doing that with the Trinity, I, I began to realize, you know, my beloved Nicaea basically wasn't going to hold up to this. I began to realize that the main opponents of the Nicene party were not the Arians proper, as is often portrayed. I mean, Arius was excommunicated, you know, at Nicaea, and, you know, nobody after Nicaea really wanted to self-identify as an Arian. It was the Homoians were the main opponents of the, the Nicaeans, and that, that name just comes from the Greek homoi, which means like, and these guys, uh, shtick was basically, look, Nicaea and Arius are both being too speculative. Arius is saying that the son is from nothing. Nicaea and Athanasius are saying that he's begotten from the substance of the father. Neither of these things are really in the Bible clearly. Why don't we just stick to the Bible and say Jesus is like the father, Jesus is begotten from the father before creation, and leave all of this more speculative detail regarding how that works that the Nicaean party really dove into head first. Uh, why don't we just leave that all out and just stick to a simpler, more biblical confession? And so they wanted to ban usia terminology. They wanted to ban being dogmatic on essence. Uh, homoousius was going to go away. And these guys were very successful. There was an ecumenical council. It was ecumenical at the time. It had imperial approval. It had high attendance, much higher than Nicaea. The councils of Ariminum and Seleucia, one met in the east, one met in the west for sake of convenience, but it was effectively one council with one decision. And, and this ratified the Homoian position as the, the ecumenical dogma of the church for uh, some, some 20 years or so up until first Constantinople Theodosius revised things. So this was the group that I said, look, this is, this must be what Sola Scriptura applied to the Trinity looks like because they're cutting back on this speculation and they're right, you know, you can't really prove this, uh, this Usia speculation from the Bible. Some of their arguments I thought were pretty good. Um, for instance, they point out the fact that, of course, in the patristic view, the angel of the Lord is the Son. There's no doubting that. That's just accepted across the board by Nicaean and Arian alike uh, up until Augustine, who, who found that problematic for his position. But the angel of the Lord is visible, not invisible, like the Father is, right? In classical theism, which is, of course, what these church fathers were very strong on, God is absolutely invisible and cannot be seen at all. It's not just a matter of you don't see him right now, it's a matter of there, there is no capacity to see God. The angel of the Lord was seen, and I started picking up on things like this, which the Homoians would point out as evidence that, you know, there's not really a good basis biblically to say that the son is homoousius with the father, right? It doesn't work to say that he's exactly identical in all his attributes while being another being if some of those attributes don't match up. If the Son is seen and the Father is essentially invisible, then there does certainly appear to be an essential difference between them. And I started to see that with several attributes, and so I became Homoian, and I was Homoian for about a year. Uh, I never embraced Arianism. I never embraced the label. The Homoians rejected Arianism. They anathematized it. Their conscious relationship to Arianism was one of, of rejecting it as error. But I really think there's an interesting parallel between the Homoian view and Arianism and the modern Trinitarian view and modalism. The Homoian view is sort of just on a purely conceptual basis. It's very, very similar to Arianism, but they don't want to be Arians. And they anathematize Arianism, and they refuse to basically say that the really Arian things, 
And so they try to avoid being Aryan, even though that's effectively what the concepts are. And I think there's a real parallel there with modern Trinitarianism, where Augustinian or modern Trinitarianism is effectively, just on a conceptual basis, it's modalism, but it really doesn't want to be modalism. It's not willing to accept that. It, it's, you know, they're, going, they're going to anathematize modalism and say that that's wrong. And, and both, I think, kind of equivocate over certain terminology and things to try to avoid people kind of taking their beliefs to their their logical ends because it's kind of forbidden. You know, with the Homoians, I think it really is the logical entailment of, of their Christology that Jesus would need to be ex nihilo created. But they were forbidden from saying this. That was an anathematized position. Jesus can't be ex nihilo in the Homoian scheme. He has to just be from the Father, and we don't know how that works. A lot of them held this view that the Father has no substance, properly speaking. They rejected any ability to distinguish between person and essence. They reject in God. They rejected the idea that within God you could have a distinction between an individual and a universal. They said God is absolutely simple. So those kinds of distinctions between uh, universal and particular cannot exist in God. So God doesn't have an essence distinct from his person. Therefore, in their view, of course, the Son can't be begotten from the Father's essence. And that only leaves being from nothing when you really get down to it, because there isn't anything else for the sun to be from. But they weren't allowed to say this, um, because that would be Arianism. Mm. And I really I think that's so parallel to modern Trinitarianism, where you know if you just look at the one-self Trinitarianism, if God is one he who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and each of those persons is equal to the entirety of God, then you carry that through to its logical conclusions, then you know, the Father is the Son, right? If, if the Father is God and the Son is God and both just are God, then logically each just is the other. But they're not allowed to say that. It's a forbidden conclusion. You're not allowed to think that and take it that far. It's anathema. And so I really think there's some interesting parallels between the sort of Homoian view and the way that that interacted with Arianism and the modern Trinitarian view's interaction with modalism. Yeah, it's interesting. These these styles of ecclesial disputes, they move really quickly from being about theology to being about words. Absolutely. <laughs> because words are what you can control. And um, <laughs> yeah, these Homoians, they thought that the Arians sounded a little extreme. And yet they still had, you know, you could say basically the same type of view. They're still subordinationists. Right. But they didn't like some of the Arian language and maybe some of the specific commitments. Yeah, it's under the hood, it's it's really the same type of view, but they didn't want the stink on them of uh, being associated with this officially condemned group. Sure. So you're saying that modalists, as understood by current day theologians, under the hood, it's really the same kind of thing as oneself Trinitarians. Exactly. There are some differences of details, and they don't say the same types of things, but you think really it's it's kind of under the hood, the same type of view. Right. And I don't think that that's dishonesty on the part of modern Trinitarians, and I don't think that it was dishonesty on the part of the Homoians either. I really think that the, the ancient Homoians saw Arianism as wrong. There was an inconsistency there in their own thinking, and I think that's true with most modern Trinitarians with modalism. I think that you know they really believe that modalism's wrong. It's just a really severe inconsistency with their own thinking that they don't realize or they never stop and, and go, go through the work of, of examining their view enough to say, you know, if I carry this through to its logical ends, how different from modalism is it really? When I think that if they did, they would find that you know it's effectively the same thing under the hood. Next week, the rest of my conversation with Andrew Davis, in which his theological journey comes to a kind of resolution. Be sure to check out the links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Especially be sure that you check out Mr. Davis's blog, which is called Contra Modalism. He has a lot of interesting material there based on his careful reading of the Church Fathers. This week's thinking music has been the track Bus Pur Rike Weir by Gerdonark. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.